Well, good evening. My lecture will have four parts. First, sex in our society. Second, sex in the Bible. And third, homosexuality in the Bible. And fourth, I'll bring all of this around to how we in the church can seek to be communities of sexual faithfulness in society today. Uh, this is being recorded, and it'll be posted online on our church's website. Uh, also, the manuscript of my lecture will be online. So for those of you for whom that kind of thing is helpful, let you know that on the front end. All right, let's get started. Sex in our society. Over the last 400 years, broadly speaking, here in the West... Our views on sex have been primarily shaped by three meta-movements in society. Number one, naturalism. Number two, romanticism. And thirdly, existentialism. First, naturalism. In the late 17th and early 18th century, metaphysical naturalism rose to prominence. And while this was not about sex... It had a powerful impact on the way we began to conceive of sex. And basically what happened is that we began to think of sex primarily from the perspective of biology. This is the person who says sex is natural. People have sex because it's an inevitable biological drive. You get hungry, you eat. In fact, when your belly grumbles, that's your body telling you to do something you need to do to live. Sex is like that, according to this, when this view worked its way down to that. And so treating sex like food or sleep or any other natural biological drive, the key issue becomes avoid the negative consequences. In other words, keep it safe. Stay away from unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases and you'll be okay. So, for example, in our public school systems, you will often encounter this approach to sex when the focus is on safety, condoms, venereal diseases, etc. This is the influence of metaphysical naturalism. In summary, good sex is safe sex. The second meta-movement shaping our inherent views of sexual behavior is romanticism. And according to this view, sex is not so much a biological drive as a relational good. A sec this, this is rooted in the counter-enlightenment movement of the late 18th, early 19th century, known as Romanticism. I'm talking about the intellectual and artistic movement. Um, writers as diverse as Jane Austen, Edgar Allan Poe, Victor Hugo, some of my favorite authors... Poets like Coleridge and Byron, painters like Goya and Delacroix, composers like Schubert, Chopin, Litz, Wagner, the list goes on and on. Now, for this view, it's not so much about biology when it comes to sex as it is about sincerity. You see, romanticism is a pushback against certain elements of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment elevated reason and romanticism elevated feeling. And the way this worked out into our views with regard to sex is that for sex, the key issue becomes love. 
Sex between two sincere, responsible, respectful, consenting people who deeply care for one another is not only natural, as metaphysical naturalism would lead us to say, it's also a special form of getting close. In addition, human beings in their unspoiled original state are brimming with natural goodness and creativity. And so our basic primal instincts, according to this view, are good and pure. So remember, with the realist, what we need to do with sex is keep it safe. With the romanticist, what we need to do is liberate sex from repression, from societal rules. For the biological realist, sex is right if sex is good. For the romanticist, sex is good if there is love. Marriage is irrelevant. What difference does it make to have a piece of legal paper filed in some court somewhere? If you've felt that logic before, it's not because it's a universal piece of logic. It's because you live in a plausibility structure that makes that logical. Sex is right and good if it's sincere, respectful, and responsible. So our job is to prevent people... No, back up. So when we prevent people from expressing their inner drives, we are repressing them. We're harming them. Third, existentialism. Sex as self-expression. This, influ- this drive was developed in the late 19th century, early 20th century. According to this view, the greatest journey a person can take is to discover who you truly are. And furthermore, your sexual desires are fundamental to your core identity. To become your true self, your sexuality must be liberated from the layers of morality that have been imposed upon you by social conventions. So like romanticism, existentialism has a fundamental commitment to seeing us free from societal mores, which are the real source of evil. Evil exists in societal structures, not inside of us. At this point in time, this is obviously the most prominent approach to sex in our culture. Your sex life is a fundamental component of your self-expression. It's fundamental to being you, to finding yourself. So naturalism, romanticism, existentialism, these are the the three meta-influences on the way we inherently conceive of sexual behavior in our society today. Naturalism leads us to focus on the biology of sex, romanticism on the relational aspects, existentialism on the psychology of personal authenticity. Now, that's in a very unfair, broad brushstroke, the way society structures the discussion. The Bible. The Bible... Its view of sex, now this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is many things, but, but an unavoidable thing is that it means you set your moral compass by the Bible. And what does the Bible say about sexuality? Well, it says an awful lot. For the sake of time, 
I'm going to identify five critical aspects of the Bible's teaching on sex in our moment. Number one, sex is good. It's a good thing created by God. In the Bible, we see that in marriage, sex is good. It's not dirty. It's not demeaning. In fact, as far as I can tell, Christianity is the most sex-positive religion in the world today. Number two, sex is appropriate only in the comprehensive lifelong commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible is clear and consistent on this issue. There are only two options when it comes to sex in the Bible. Faithfulness in marriage, none of it outside of marriage. It's the only two options. Fidelity in marriage, abstinence, celibacy, and singleness. The only alternative in the Bible to heterosexual monogamous marriage is to be a celibate single. Number three, in the Bible, sex has a threefold purpose. Number one, sex unites two people. Number two, sex leads to children. And number three, sex recalls and reenacts the promise that God makes to us to be faithful to us. Furthermore, These three purposes in the Bible, the unitive, the procreative, and the sacramental aspects of sex, are interwoven and you cannot separate them. And so, so while we can distinguish each of the purposes conceptually, to do so is purely intellectual. It's an abstraction. It's artificial. When you separate procreation from getting close, from intimacy, when you separate these, you distort sex. And it will distort you. That's the biblical teaching. Number four, we are all sexually broken. Every one of us. We live in a different state than Adam and Eve did before the fall. A barrier has been erected. A threshold has been crossed. And even though our sexuality was designed by God in creation, it was broken in the fall. In fact, few gifts of God have been more thoroughly desecrated by our broken minds, our broken hearts, than our sexuality. Our disordered minds, our disordered desires, they disorder our lives. Number five, sex is not necessary for a full life. Time and time again, Scripture teaches us that it is possible to live a full life without having sex. And we've got to learn to say this over and over and over to our teenagers, to our children. You know, are children unfulfilled until they have sex? Are widowers unfulfilled? No, it is possible to have a full life. And we've got to say this to teenagers, divorcees, widowers, singles. The Bible completely undercuts our culture's obsession with sexual fulfillment. 
Throughout the Bible, sex is one of God's greatest gifts. And yes, our sex drives are powerful. But to be human means that, among other things, our sex drives can be constrained. And they must be constrained. Whether you're a teenager, a college student, whether you're gay or straight, single or married. The Bible never makes sexuality the basis for defining your identity. Or for finding fulfillment. Or for ending loneliness. Sex in the Bible does not end loneliness. It does not bring purpose. And it does not define your identity. The idea that sex is essential to your life is not a basic truth of reality. It's a view that has largely resulted from the work of Sigmund Freud and Abraham Maslow. The idea that sex is a physiological or psychological need that is essential for human flourishing is wrong. The idea that people fulfill or actualize themselves through sex and everybody must have sex in order to be whole is wrong. Abstinence is not worse than death. Both Jesus and Paul lived without sexual relationships without sexual acting out their sexuality in those ways. You can be a whole person without ever having sex your entire life. Okay. Those, I think, are the five most important biblical teachings with regard to sex in our day and age. Now, what I want to do is look particularly at homosexual behavior. How is it treated in the Bible? What does the Bible say about homosexual behavior? Behavior. Well, it does not deal with the issue very much. But every time it deals with it, it condemns it. Without question. Every time the Bible talks about homosexual behavior, every time, it describes it as inappropriate. It is a sin. It is not good for you. The Bible says same-sex sexual activity, whether it's between two men or two women or even more, it is always forbidden in the Bible. Now let's walk through the passages as they occur. The first time homosexual behavior occurs in the Bible is Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, to be fair... Homosexual behavior is not the primary focus of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fundamental sin that Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrate is is that they disregard the needs of vulnerable people. This is what the prophet Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 16.49. And yet Jude verse 7 indicates homosexual behavior is part of the issue. I think it's best to say that in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there is more going on than homosexual behavior, but certainly not less. The next time we encounter homosexual behavior in the Bible is in the book of Leviticus. Now notice, we've moved from narrative to law code. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a man... As with a woman, it is an abomination. 
Then in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a woman as with a man, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A couple of things. First of all, the cultures that surrounded Israel at the time this was written did not have a problem with homosexual behavior. For example, the law code of Assyria, written around the same time as this, clearly indicates that homosexual rape is wrong and punishable, but that there is nothing wrong in homosexual acts between consenting adults. The Egyptians banned homosexual intercourse between adults and children, but other than that, it was okay. And this appears to be consistent with the Hittites and the Canaanite cultures. A few centuries later, classical Greek and then the Roman culture approved of homosexuality, even between adults and children, so long as it was in the context of an ongoing educational relationship. What I'm saying is that when Israel wrote these very strong statements... It's an abomination, punishable by death. When they wrote it, it was new, and they were the minority. It was something that took tremendous courage. The Bible, did you notice, it not only bans it, pronounces it an abomination, one of the strongest condemnatory words in the Old Testament, reserved only for offenses especially heinous to God. But it also prescribes the death penalty. Now, if we were to read the entire paragraph in Leviticus 20, we'd see that there are actually four types of sexual behavior that are given the death penalty. Adultery, homosexual behavior, incest, and bestiality. But my larger point, number one, it condemns it. And number two, it was a new and rare move. The next four passages in the Bible that deal with homosexual behavior all deal with homosexual prostitution. I'll not take the time to dig into them. If you're taking notes, it's Deuteronomy 23, 17. 1 Kings 15, 12. 1 Kings 15. Uh, 22.46 and 2 Kings 23.7. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, nothing changes. The New Testament simply adopts the sexual ethic of the Old Testament, including the prohibition against homosexual behavior. Now, we're not going to take the time to read through all of the passages that in the New Testament that deal with this. If you're taking notes, again, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Instead, I want to focus our attention on the most important passage in the New Testament dealing with homosexual behavior, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. When I say, just by the way, that the New Testament adopts the view of the Old Testament, I'm not talking about the death penalty for it. I'm talking about the larger ethical perspective that it is an abomination. Okay. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 is a diagnosis of the human condition. And the central claim is that the entire human race is unrighteous because we refuse to honor God and to worship Him, and we've been made in His image. Now, as a result, in response to the human race rejecting its Creator, Romans chapter 1 says that the Creator has given us up to various broken desires, one of those being homosexual behavior. So in this passage, homosexual behavior does not provoke the wrath of God. It is a consequence of God giving us up to our own futile thinking and unhealthy desires. All of the sins listed in Romans chapter 1 are symptoms and the underlying problem is that we have turned away from God. And homosexuality is one of those. But for now, I simply want to make the point that the Bible offers no loopholes, no exceptions, no way out of its prohibition against homosexual sex. Despite the best effort of some recent interpreters to explain away the evidence, the Bible remains unambiguous and absolute in its condemnation of this behavior. This is the orthodox position. It is not the position of fundamentalism. This view is not a sectarian view. The Christian teaching from day one has been that homosexual sex is not part of God's original creative intention for humanity. It is a tragic sign of human sin. And it produces pain and suffering. And this teaching has been held with almost total unanimity by the church throughout the centuries. Homosexuality is not God's original creative intention for humanity. It goes against God's express will. Now, three common objections to the biblical teaching regarding homosexual behavior. First of all, some people say when the Bible condemns homosexual behavior, it is talking about issues like homosexual rape, violations of power like pedophilia, but that the Bible is not addressing the modern understanding of a homosexual orientation. And furthermore, the argument goes, same-sex unions can sustain the theological and biblical structure of steadfast fidelity and intimate fellowship in the image of God's love. So, according to this objection, same-sex marriage enables people to live out God's plan. That's not true. That's wrong. The ancient world fully understood a great deal about what people today regard as long-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern arrival. This is chronological hubris. Just read Plato's Symposium or any of the various accounts from the early Roman Empire. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course there was plenty of that then. 
But it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of homosexual options. It is simply untrue to say that we are reading this in a different context that makes our situation different. In fact, we are now reading it in a closer context than our forefathers a hundred years ago were reading it when they read it. Second, a second objection. Some people will object to the traditional biblical teaching by pointing out that Jesus preached tolerance and acceptance. After all, he welcomed sinners and outcasts. He found people on the margins and brought them in. Isn't the heart of the gospel welcome? Isn't the heart of the gospel to accept that you are accepted by God? God loves you as you are. God accepts you and welcomes you as you are. And therefore... So should the church. Again, that's just not a fair reading of the Bible. To read it in that way is an act of abuse. It is an abuse of the text. It's an inappropriate use of power by the reader over an author who is not present. It is colonialism all over again. Read the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. It simply will not do to say that Jesus advocates tolerance and leaves it at that. There are many passages in which he shows himself robustly intolerant of all kinds of behavior. In fact, when it comes to sexual morality, not for one moment does any part of the Bible, Jesus included, say that the biblical teaching on sexuality is flexible. It's not flexible and it's not ambiguous. Sex and marriage between one man and one woman for life. No sex outside of that. In the Bible, there is a difference between unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. Frankly put, God does not accept us as we are. Because what we are is fallen and flawed sinful people. God loves us as we are. But he insists that we change. That we repent of every sinful behavior and inclination. That we become more like Jesus. Time and time again in the Bible, the way God acts, and for that matter in the Gospels, the way Jesus acts is that he is loving and welcoming. But, he, but that never means he simply accepts all of our choices and behaviors. I mean, just a, just a, a mental game. If, if love means acceptance, does God accept the intolerant person in their intolerance? See, if love equals acceptance, then the person saying that needs to accept me for being intolerant. No, they don't. Love and acceptance are two different things. The unconditional loving welcome that God offers in Christ includes incredible demands in regard to our conduct and even in regard to the lusts of our heart. It is sin that keeps separating us from God and ruining our relationship with God and with ourselves and with others and with his blessed, good, but broken creation. A third common objection to the prohibition against sexual behavior goes like this. If I don't have a choice, then it's unfair to condemn me. Two points here. 
First, as many of you know, there's a large body of modern psychological and scientific work on the issue of homosexuality. Is it nature or is it nurture? We don't know. So far, the medical and biological evidence is inconclusive. I think it's probably genetically rooted. My hunch is you can be born gay. After all, we're all fallen human beings and we're born in all sorts of distorted and twisted and broken ways. We don't know why we have the orientations the way they are. But it doesn't matter. Because the Christian view is that you can be born broken. No one really argues that all inborn traits are good and desirable. Let me use an analogy. Be careful with me here because all analogies have their limits, okay? So don't tweet one line out of what I'm about to say. Alcoholism. It's only an analogy. It doesn't take us all the way, but it gives us a helpful insight. There's a considerable body of evidence suggesting that some people are born with a predisposition to alcoholism. Some of you went to college, you drank like a fish, your friend drank like a fish, you got out of college and started acting responsibly, your friend died an alcoholic. I've got a friend at 10, he took a drink, and from there on, he was gone. Other people, a certain friend in this room sitting over here who did the same thing around 10, after a parent's party, <laughs> went through the room picking up the empty cups, and it didn't affect him the same way. Once exposed to alcohol, some people experience an attraction so powerful it can be counteracted only by three things. Careful counseling, community support, and total abstinence. We now conventionally speak of alcoholism as a disease. And we carefully distinguish our disapproval of the behavior from our loving support of the person. In fact, people all the time identify themselves. I'm so-and-so. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. Ten years sober. What are they doing in that moment? They're distinguishing between their behavior and their orientation. I think that homoerotic attraction should be treated similarly in many cases. A second point. As great-grandchildren of the, the Enlightenment, we like to think of ourselves as free moral agents, choosing rationally among possible actions. But Scripture says that's not the way it works. The Bible says in multiple places, it's most clear in Romans six seventeen, that we are slaves to sin. And because of this, our perception and our will, our perception is distorted and our will is overpowered and we are incapable of choosing the good. Not in every time, in every situation. But the principle stands. Redemption is God's act of liberation, setting us free from the power of sin and placing us within the sphere of God's transforming grace in Christ. You see, the Bible's sober anthropology rejects the apparently common sense assumption that only freely, freely chosen acts are morally culpable. Whether you're born that way or not, you're still morally culpable. Quite the, in, in the Bible, the very nature of sin is that you are not freely choosing it. This is what it means to live in the flesh in a fallen creation. It cannot be maintained that a homosexual orientation is morally neutral because it is involuntary. Now, 
I'll stop there on the homosexual issue. For the last portion of my lecture, I want to offer eight suggestions for our churches to become communities of sexual faithfulness, to give us some sense of how to live out the clear teaching of Scripture in a scriptural way. Number one, we must become, we must recover the virtue of courage. Fear in the Bible, unless it's fear of God, is wrong. It erodes character. Our big fear is being misunderstood. You just got to die to that. You're going to be misunderstood. Because of a plausibility structure. See, the plausibility structure of our society says everything I'm saying is hate speech in some ways. I mean, not being a little overly stated. We've got to give up the fear of being regarded as unenlightened. The fear of being thought of as a bigot. The fear of having an unpopular view. Revelation 21.8 says cowards go to hell. I'm not talking about becoming homophobic. Homophobia is when we stigmatize and fear homosexual people. That's a sin. Homophobia is a sin. God loves everybody. He doesn't love their sin, but he loves them. It's morally wrong to treat gay and lesbian people as if they're some kind of lepers. And yet, homosexual behavior is sexual sin, and sexual sin is serious sin in the Bible. If it wasn't, John the Baptist wouldn't have had his head cut off. If, if, if sexual sin wasn't at the heart of the gospel, what the gospel is touching on, John the Baptist would not have had his head cut off. We must be willing and able to say to people that when we call them to renounce homosexual behavior, we are calling them to life, full life, abundant life. We can be confident about what kind of behavior pleases God when it comes to sex. There are lots of difficult parts of the Bible. This is not one. Difficult to live out, difficult to explain, but not difficult in its basic essence. We must not be fearful to acknowledge that homosexual behavior is inappropriate. Number two, we must recover a biblical view of gender. And what we see in the Bible is that gender matters. And we've got to get much smarter on this. My dad did not have to tell me why homosexual behavior was sin. I felt it. I have to tell my children why it's sin. Because they don't feel like it is. And when you don't feel like it's something, you need to know the reason why. And gender is at the heart of this. The creation narrative makes a big deal out of gender. Gender is so important, it shows up in the most foundational section of the Bible, creation. God made humans in two categories, male and female. There is an ontological reality to our masculinity and femininity, a givenness in creation. And furthermore, not only in creation, no less than ten passages in the New Testament discussed gender with great focus. And many other passages touch on the issue. This is huge in the Bible. Our society is in a very different place. For our society, there's a separation between your body and who you really are. The college student 
rolls out of bed and goes to class in their pajamas and dares anybody around them to judge them because the real them is deep on the inside to which there's a word in the Bible, baloney. (laughs) You cannot separate your body from your soul. Not in the Bible. If you think your clothes don't matter, then you think gender doesn't matter. See, part of what's gotten us to where we are is that we have lost ground on the gender issue. What I'm, who I really am, my personhood is distinct from my body. It's what the, this is what our culture says. And as a result, gender becomes construction. Gender is constructed by society and not inherent to our biology. Simone de Beauvoir famously expresses, one is not born but becomes a woman. Being female is not biologically given. It's something produced by society. But in the Christian view, being male and female is not just an attribute of yourself. It is constitutive to you. Number three. We need to recover a biblical view of marriage. Now, part of this in the church we're good at. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, and any sexual activity outside of that is prohibited by the Creator. Most of you, if you grew up in a church that had a high view of the Bible, you know that. But let me give you five issues on marriage that I think we have really failed on. Number one, marriage is a calling. It is not a right in the Bible. This is most precisely articulated in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul reminds us that being sexually faithful to your heterosexual spouse or being celibate as a single, both are grace gifts. Gifts, not callings. Not right. I'm sorry, gifts, not rights. It requires grace from God to remain true in either condition. And frankly, grace restrains and transforms our nature. Nature, according to God, does not ever have the last word. Grace does. We have got to resist the language of rights when it comes to marriage. Marriage is not a right. It's a gift. It's a calling. Number two, gender roles matter in marriage. In our resistance to patriarchy, we make a fatal mistake. If we remove all gender roles for marriage. Gender not only matters for sexual ethics. It matters for marriage roles. Number three. The purpose of marriage is to serve God. Not to remove loneliness. In the Bible the answer to loneliness is not marriage. It is Christian friendship. It's a trick of the English grammar. Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be... Anybody know? Which is a different word than lonely. It's a trick of the English language that makes us slide alone into lonely. God had told Adam... God had commanded humanity in Genesis 1 to multiply and fill the earth with his image. Then in Genesis 2, Adam's all by himself. And he says it's not good for him to be alone. Now in the narrative plot, why is it bad for him to be alone? Because he can't fill up the earth with babies. Alone, God's offer of Eve to Adam is not a companion. In fact, some of you have the verse memorized. So God made for him a what? A helper. Help is what Eve was for. 
The purpose of marriage is not companionship. Companionship is a wonderful benefit of marriage. I look at it this way. I have have five children. The youngest is six years old. We go on a trip. He should be in the car. Put him in the driver's seat. It's bad. (laughs) Companionship belongs in the car of marriage. But when we put companionship in the driver's seat, it distorts marriage. All of the best-selling evangelical books on marriage of the last 15 years that I've read, every one of them makes companionship the preeminent focus of marriage. If that's the case, you're condemning homosexuals when you say they can't get married to loneliness. Number four, that we've got to, when it comes to marriage, a fourth way that we've got to sort some things out is we've got to recover the indivisibility of the threefold purpose of sex. We've got to stop separating sex into intimacy, making babies, and sacrament. Now, the Protestant church is in a real bind here because the Protestant church is uncritical about birth control. And birth control separates sex for pleasure from sex from procreation. The reason the Catholic church has resisted birth control is precisely because it refuses to separate sex into its constitutive parts. Now, I've got to move on. So if you want to talk more about that in Q&A, we can. Number five, when it comes to marriage, God hates divorce and we should fight it. And we should insist that remarriage is only acceptable after a legitimate divorce. I think these are the five aspects of marriage that Protestants have lost ground on. And it has weakened our ability to deal with sexual behavior in our culture today. All right. Number four on my suggestions for becoming communities of sexual faithfulness. We need to recover a robust theology and practice of celibacy. In the Bible, the only alternative to heterosexual monogamous marriage is singleness. For the sake of the kingdom. We need to offer practical help to people who are not married. If you're a pastor and you've ever preached on the family, have you ever preached on how to find good friends? The place we need to look is the monastic and priestly traditions of Christianity, both Roman and Orthodox. They offer vast experience and literature on the gift and discipline of celibacy. We need to develop wisdom and literature on this. Number five, we need to recover radical community and genuine biblical hospitality. We must welcome gay people to come as they are into our churches. It's just that a gay person, like anybody else, is not welcome to stay as they are. All of us have to repent of our sins. The church must be an equal opportunity critiquer of all lifestyles that the Bible says are inappropriate. Inappropriate behavior is where the rubber meets the road in the Bible. It doesn't... The issue lies in the Bible with the behavior. So to everyone we say, come as you are. You are welcome to come as you are. We will not single your sin out. You don't deserve to be singled out. But everyone who sins will be called to repentance for every one of their sins. We've got to become the kind of churches where single doesn't mean lonely. Where extended networks of friends and families really do share one another's joys and sorrows. If we can't support singles, whether they're perpetual singles, divorced or widowed, we can't support gay people. 
In our pastoral care of singles and gays, we are combining fidelity to Jesus' teaching on marriage with the mercy at the heart of his teaching. In the words of Pope Benedict, a fundamental and massive task of the church is to do whatever is possible to help all people, including gay people, feel loved and then feel they're not excluded. Jesus doesn't simply dismiss the divorced and tell them to grit their teeth and suffer in loneliness. Remember, it's the Pharisees who had the habit of burdening others with law, yet did not lift a finger to help them with the burden. Jesus, pound for pound, gives more law than Moses did. But he gives us help. The church's social arrangements need to enable us to live faithful, single lives as celibates. Water is thicker than blood in Christianity. The church is an irreducible complexity. The church is not a family of families. The church is more basic than family. The church shatters the idolatry of family. Family is not the answer to loneliness in the Bible. Christian friendship is. Number six, we need to become a safe place for gay Christians. Now, I'm using this phrase, gay Christian, in a very specific way. I'm using it to indicate a person who has homosexual attractions but, does, but resists them. I don't use it to mean a gay Christian is a person who is gay and wants you to affirm gayness. I'm talking about a greedy Christian. I'm talking about a lustful Christian. I'm talking about a prideful Christian. A prideful Christian can never mean a Christian who's proud and wants you to affirm their pride. When I say gay Christian, I'm using it in a controversial way. Uh, Rosario Butterfield, who I recommend to you on this subject, she thinks it's bad. She says the adjective is, its job is to change the noun, and so we shouldn't do that. I I think the issue going on, though, is that there are many people who are Christian and it is deep in the core of their being to be attracted to the same sex. We need to get far, far better at being churches who are actually safe places for same-sex attracted people. To be quite honest, we need people in the church who have homosexual feelings but who believe homosexual sex is wrong and have 20 years of soberness on the issue. Just like we do with alcoholism. Too many Christians are frightened at the thought of sharing the story of their sexual reality with their fellow Christians. We need to teach our families how to help their children who have same-sex attractions to live in the light. By God's grace, being known is better than being unknown. We need to become the kind of churches that when someone is in their 30s or 40s and for the first time in their lives they're experiencing the awakening of homosexual impulses... And desires and they're scared to death. They know who they can go to to talk to about it. The church needs gay Christians among us to collect and reflect on their celibate experiences. And another reason we need gay Christians is because us middle class white folk need to remember that Christianity means we take up our cross and die. And gay Christians can remind us of that in a very serious way. They can look at us complaining about being made fun of and laugh at us because we get to have our sex and they don't. 
The church needs gay Christians. Number seven, we need to recover a theology and practice a culture of real spiritual friendship. It is the bonds of friendship that make the demands of discipleship bearable. Friendship makes faithfulness possible. Number eight, we need to recover the vocation of singleness. I've already said this a lot, so I'm going to move on. I'll close with two points. First of all, I've said over and over we need to recover. We're not in a new moment. The resources are there. The church has been here before. It's been faithful. Second, if you're attracted to people of your own gender, there are amazing resources. Wesley Hill wrote a book, Washed in Waiting. Rosario Butterfield wrote The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The list goes on and on. Number two, if, you're, if you have same-sex attraction, talk with someone. Talk with me. Talk with Mark Thiessen Nation. Talk with Mary Thiessen Nation. Number three, if you have engaged in homosexual activity, repent. Ask God's forgiveness. And He will. I'll stop there. I've done enough.